0: Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 55. For Americans of Chinese descent, and San Francisco has a large Chinese population, 1965 was the year of the snake. For Junior Kane, it was the year of the gun, though it didn't start out that way. His first year in San Francisco was an eventful one for the nation and the world. Winston Churchill, arguably the greatest man of the century thus far, died. The United States launched the first airstrikes against North Vietnam, and Lyndon Johnson raised troop levels to 150,000 in that conflict. A Soviet cosmonaut was the first to take a spacewalk outside of an orbiting craft. Race riots raged and watch for five fiery days. The Voting Rights Act in 1965 was signed into law. Sandy Koufax, a Los Angeles Dodger, pitched a perfect game in which no hitter reached first base. T.S. Eliot died, and Junior purchased one of the Poets' works through the Book of the Month Club. Other famous people passed away. Stan Laurel, Nat King Cole, Lake Corbusier, Albert Schweitzer, Somerset Maugham. Indira Gandhi became the first woman prime minister of India, and the Beatles' inexplicable and annoying success rolled on and on. Aside from purchasing the T.S. Eliot book, which he hadn't found time to read, Junior was only peripherally aware of current events because they were, after all, current. While he always tried to focus on the future, the news of the day was but a faint background music to him, like a song on a radio in another apartment. He lived high on Russian Hill, in a limestone-clad building with carved Victorian detail. His one-bedroom unit included a roomy kitchen with a breakfast nook and a spacious living room with windows looking down on twisty Lombard Street. Memory of the spartan decor of Thomas Vanadium's house lingered with Junior, and he addressed his living space with the detective's style in mind. He installed a minimum of furniture, though all new and of higher quality than the junk in Vanadium's residence. Sleek, modern, Danish, pecan wood and nappy oatmeal-colored upholstery. The walls were barren. The only art in these rooms was a single sculpture. Jr. was taking university extension courses in art appreciation and almost daily haunting the city's countless galleries, constantly deepening and refining his knowledge. He intended to refrain from acquiring a collection until he was as expert on the subject as any director of any museum in the city. The one piece he had purchased was by a young Bay Area artist, Babel Peripherine about whom art critics nationwide were in agreement. He was destined for a long and significant career. The sculpture cost over $9,000, an extravagance for a man trying to live on the income of his hard-won and prudently invested fortune. But his presence in his living room immediately identified him, to Shinti, as a person of taste and cutting-edge sensibilities. The six-foot-tall statue was of a nude woman, formed from scrap metal, some that rusted and otherwise corroded. The feet were made from gear wheels of various sizes and from bent blades of broken meat cleavers. Pistons, pipes, and barbed wire formed her legs. She was busty. Hammered soup pots as breasts, cork screws as nipples. Raked teen hands were crossed defensively over the misshapen bosom. In a face sculpted from bent forks and fan blades, empty black eye sockets glared with hideous suffering. And a wide-mouthed shriek accused the world with a silent but profound cry of horror. Occasionally, when Junior returned home from a day of gallery-hopping or an evening at a restaurant, Industrial Woman, the artist's title, scared away his mellow mood. More than once, he had cried out in alarm before realizing this was just his prized periphery. Waking from a bad dream, he sometimes thought he heard the ratcheting of gear wheel feet, the scrape and creak of russet iron joints, the clink of rake time fingers rattling against one another. Usually, he remained still, Tense, listening, until enough silence convinced him that the sounds he had heard had been in the dream, not in the real world. If silence didn't settle him, he went into the living room, only to discover that she was always where he had left her. Fork and fan blade face wrenched in a soundless scream. This is, of course, the purpose of art. To disturb you. To leave you uneasy with yourself and wary of the world. To undermine your sense of reality in order to make you reconsider all that you think you know. The finest art should shatter you emotionally, devastate you intellectually, leave you physically ill, and fill you with loathing for those cultural traditions that bind us and weigh us down and drown us in a sea of conformity. Junior had learned this much already from his art appreciation course. In early May, he sought self-improvement by taking French lessons, the language of love. In June, he bought a pistol. He didn't intend to use it to kill anyone. Indeed, he would get through the rest of 1965 without resorting to another homicide. The non-fatal shooting in September will be regrettable, quite messy, painful, but necessary, and calculated to do as little damage as possible. But first, in early July, he stopped taking French lessons. So he started in early May and he stopped in early July. It was an impossible language, difficult to pronounce, ridiculous sentence constructions. Anyway, none of the good-looking women he met spoke French or care whether he did. In August, he developed an interest in meditation. He began with concentrative meditation, the form called meditation with seed, in which you must close your eyes, mentally focus on a visualized object, and clear your mind of all else. His instructor, Bob Chikani who visited twice a week for an hour, advised him to imagine a perfect fruit as the object of his meditation. An apple, a grape, an orange, whatever. This didn't work for Junior. Strangely, when he focused on a mental image of any fruit, apple, peach, banana, his thoughts drifted to sex. He became aroused and had no hope of clearing his mind. Eventually, he settled on a mental image of a bowling pin as his seed. This was a smooth, elegantly shaped object that invited languorous contemplation, but it did not tease his libido. On Tuesday evening, September 7th, after half an hour in the lotus position, thinking about nothing whatsoever but a white pin with two black bands at its neck and the number one painted on its head, Dringer went to bed at 11 o'clock and set his alarm for 3 in the morning, when he intended to shoot himself. He slept well, woke refreshed, and threw back the covers. On the nightstand, waited a glass of water on a coaster and a pharmacy bottle containing several capsules of a potent painkiller. This analgesic was amongst several prescription substances that he had stolen, over time, from the drug locker at the rehab hospital where he once worked. Some he had sold. These he had retained. He swallowed one capsule and washed it down with water. He returned the pharmacy bottle to the nightstand. Sitting up in bed, he passed a little time reading favorite, marked passages in Zed's You Are the World. The book presented a brilliant argument that selfishness was the most misunderstood, moral, rational, and courageous of all human motivations. The painkiller was not morphine-based, and it did not signal its presence in the system by inducing sleepiness or even a faint blurring of the senses. After 40 minutes, however, he was sure that it must be effective, and he put the book aside. The pistol was in the nightstand, fully loaded. Barefoot, in midnight blue silk pajamas, he walked through his rooms, turning on lights in a considered pattern, which he had settled upon after much thought and planning. In the kitchen, he plucked a clean dish towel from a drawer, carried it to the granite top secretary, and sat in front of the telephone. Previously, he had sat here with a pencil, making shopping lists. Now, instead of a pencil, there was the Italian-made twenty-two pistol. After mentally reviewing what he must say, after working up a nervous edge, he dialed the SFPD emergency number. When the police operator answered, Junior shrieked, I've been shot! Jesus! Shot! Help me! An ambulance! Oh, shit! Hurry! The operator attempted to calm him, but he remained hysterical. Between gasps and sharp squeals of pretended pain, he shakily rattled off his name, address, and phone number. She told him to stay on the line, stay on no matter what, told him to keep talking to her, and he hung up. He slid his chair sideways to the secretary and leaned forward with the gun in both hands. 10, 20, almost 30 seconds later, the phone rang. On the third ring, Junior shot off the big toe on his left foot. Wow. The gunshot was louder, and the pain initially less than he expected. Timpani boom, timpani boom. The explosion echoed back and forth through the high ceiling department. He dropped the gun. On the seventh ring, he snatched up the telephone. Certain the caller was a police operator, Junior screamed as though in agony, wondering if his cry sounded genuine since he had no opportunity to release. Then, in spite of the painkiller, his cries suddenly were genuine. Sobbing desperately, he dropped the telephone handset on the secretary. seized the dish towel. He wrapped the cloth tightly around the shattered stump, applying pressure to diminish the bleeding. His severed toe lay across the room, on the white tile floor. It stuck up stiffly, nail gleaming, as if the floor was snow and the toe was the only exposed extremity of a body buried in a drift. He felt as though he might pass out. For more than 23 years, he had given his big toe little consideration, had taken it for granted, had treated it with shameful neglect. Now this lower digit seemed precious, a comparatively small fixture of flesh, but as important to his image of himself as his nose or either of his eyes. Darkness encroached at the edges of his vision. Dizzy, he tipped forward, out of the chair, and spilled onto the floor. He managed to hold the towel around his foot, but it grew dark red and disgustingly mushy. He must not pass out. He dared not. Aftermath was not important, only movement mattered. Just forget the busload of nuns smashed on the tracks and stay with the on-rushing train. Keep moving, looking forward, always forward. This philosophy had worked for him previously, but forgetting the aftermath was more difficult when the aftermath was your own poor, torn, severed toe. Your own poor, <laughs> torn, severed toe? was. Infinitely more difficult to ignore than a busload of dead nuns. Struggling to keep a grip on consciousness, Dreamer told himself to focus on the future, to live in the future, the useless past and the difficult present. But he could not get into the future far enough to be in a time where the pain was no longer with him. He thought he heard the tick, great rattle clink of industrial woman on the prowl, in the living room, now the hall, Approaching. Unable to hold his breath or quiet his miserable sobbing, Junior couldn't hear clearly enough to discern whether the sounds of the stalking sculpture were real or imagined. He knew that they had to be imaginary, but he felt they were real. Frantically, he squirmed around the floor until he was facing the entrance of the kitchen. Through tears of pain, he expected to see a Frankensteinian shadow loom in the hall, and then the creature itself, gnashing its fourteen teeth its corkscrew nipples spinning. The doorbell rang. The police. The stupid police. Ringing the bell when they knew he had been shot. Ringing the damn doorbell when he lay here helpless, the industrial lady lurching towards him, his toe on the other side of the kitchen. Ringing the doorbell when he was losing enough blood to give transfusions to an entire ward of wounded hemophiliacs. The stupid bastards were probably expecting him to serve tea and a plate of butter cookies, little paper doilies between each cup and saucer. Break down the door, he shouted. Junior had left the front door locked, because if unlocked, it would look as though he had wanted to facilitate their entry, and it would make them suspicious of the whole scenario. Break down the damn door! After the stupid bastards read a newspaper or smoked a few cigarettes, they finally broke down the door satisfyingly dramatic, like splintering wood, the crash. Here they came, at alas, guns drawn, wary. Different uniforms, yet they reminded him of the cops in Oregon, gathered in the shadows of the fire tower. The same faces, hard-eyed, suspicious. If vanadium appeared amongst these men, Junior would not only puke out the contents of his stomach, but he would also disgorge his internal organs, every last one of them and spew up his bones, too, until he emptied out everything within his skin. I, I thought there was a burglar, Junior groaned. But he knew better than to spit out his entire story at once, for then he would appear to be reciting a script. Soon, paramedics followed the police, who spread out throughout the apartment, and Junior relinquished his grip on the dish towel. In a minute or two, one of the cops returned, crouching close to the medics' work. There's no intruder. I, 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 thought there was. No sign of forced entry. Junior pressed the word through a grimace of pain. Accident. The cop had picked up the 22 pistol using a pencil through a trigger guard to prevent the destruction of fingerprints. Mine, Junior said, nodding at the gun. Ray's eyebrows punctuated the question. You shot yourself? Junior strode to appear properly mortified. I thought I heard something. Search the apartment. You shot yourself in the foot? Yeah, Junior said, and refrained from adding, you moron. How'd it happen? Nervous, he said, and howled when one of the paramedics proved to be a sadist masquerading as an angel of mercy. Two more uniformed officers entered the kitchen, fresh from their search of the apartment. They were amused. Junior wanted to shoot all of them, but he said, take it, keep it, get it the hell out of here. Your gun? asked the crouching officer. I never want to see it again. I hate guns. Jesus, this hurts. Then by ambulance to the hospital, whisting a surgery, and for a while, blessed unconsciousness. Paramedics preserved his raggedly severed toe in a one-quart plastic rubber-made container from his own pantry. Junior would never again use it to store leftover soup. Although first-rate, the surgical team wasn't able to reattach the badly torn extremity. Tissue damage was too extensive to permit delicate bone, nerve, and blood vessel repair. The stump was capped at the end of the internal cuneiform depriving Junior of everything from the metatarsal to the tip of the toe. He was delighted with this result, because successful reattachment would have been a calamity. By Friday morning, September 10th, little more than 48 hours after the shooting, he felt good and was in fine spirits. He happily signed a police form, relinquishing ownership of the pistol that he had purchased in late June. The city operated a program to melt confiscated and donated weapons, and to remake them into plowshares or xylophones or into the metal fittings of hookah pipes. By Thursday, September 23rd, due to Junior's accident and surgery, the draft board, which had reinstated his 1A status after he had lost the exemption that had come with his former job as a rehabilitation therapist, agreed to schedule a new physical examination in December. Considering the protection that it would afford him in a world full of warmongers, Junior considered the loss of his toe, while tragic, to be a necessary disfigurement. To his doctors and nurses, he made jokes about dismemberment. And in general, he put on a brave face, for which he knew he was much admired. Anyway, traumatic as it had been, the shooting was not the worst thing that happened to him that year. Recuperating, he had plenty of time to practice meditation. He became so proficient at focusing on the imaginary bowling pin that he could make himself oblivious of all else. A stridently ringing phone wouldn't penetrate his trance. Even Bob Chicani, Jr.'s instructor, who knew all the tricks, could not make his voice heard when Jr. was at one with the pen. There was plenty of time, as well, for the Bartholomew search. Back in January, when he received the disappointing report from Nolly Woolston, Jr. was not convinced that the private detective had exercised due diligence in his investigation. He suspected that Woolstan's ugliness was matched by his laziness. Using a false name, claiming that he was an adoptee, Junior made inquiries with several child placement organizations, as well as with state and federal agencies. He discovered that Wolfstan's story was true. Adoption records were sealed by law for the protection of the birth parents, and getting at them was all but impossible. While waiting for inspiration to present him with a better strategy, Junior returned to the telephone book in search of the right Bartholomew. Not the directory for Spruce Hills in the surrounding county, but the one for San Francisco. The city was less than seven miles on the side, only 46 square miles, but Junior was nevertheless faced with a daunting task. Hundreds of thousands of people resided within the city limits. Worse, the people who adopted Seraphim's baby might be anywhere in the nine-county Bay Area. Millions of phone listings to scan. Reminding himself that fortune favored the persistent and that he must always look for the bright side, Junior began with the city itself and with those whose surnames were Bartholomew. This was a manageable number. Posing as a counselor with the Catholic Family Services, he phoned each list of Bartholomew with a question related to his or her recent adoption. Those who expressed bafflement and who claimed not to have adopted a child were generally stricken from his list. In a few instances, when the suspicion was aroused in spite of their denial, Junior tracked down their residences. He observed them in the flesh and made additional and subtle inquiries at their neighbors until he was satisfied that his quarry was elsewhere. By mid-March, he had exhausted the possibility of Bartholomew as a surname. By the time that he had shot himself in September, he had come through the first quarter million listings in the directory in search of those whose first names were Bartholomew. Of course, Seraphim's child would not have a telephone. He was just a baby, James the Junior in a way that was not clear but a baby, nonetheless. Bartholomew was an uncommon name, however, and logic suggested that if the baby was now called Bartholomew, he had been named for his adoptive dad. Therefore, a search of the listings might be fruitful. Although Junior continued to feel threatened, continued to trust his instinct in the matter, he didn't devote his every waking hour to the hunt. He had a life to enjoy, after all. Self-improvements to undertake, galleries to explore, women to pursue. More likely than not, he would cross Bartholomew's path when he least expected, not as a consequence of his searching, but in the normal course of a day. If that happened, he must be prepared to eliminate the threat immediately, by any means available to him. Therefore, after the Nazi shooting, as the Bartholomew hunt continued, so did the good life. Following a month of recuperation and post-operative medical care, he was able to return to his twice-a-week classes in art appreciation. He resumed as well his almost daily strolls through the city's better galleries and fine museums a firm but pliable rubber custom formed to his disfigured foot a shoe insert filled the void left by his missing toe this simple aid ensured that virtually all footwear was comfortable and by november Junior walked with no discernible limp when he reported for a physical and a reassessment of his draft classification on Wednesday december fifteenth he left the insert in his shoe However, he limped like old Walter Brennan, the actor, hitching around the ranch in the real McCoys. The selective service physician quickly declared Jr. to be maimed and unfit. Quietly, but with passion, Jr. pleaded for a chance to prove his value to the armed forces, but the examiner was unmoved by patriotism, interested only in keeping the cattle line of other potential draftees moving past him at a steady pace. To celebrate... Dringer went to a gallery and purchased a second piece of art in his collection. Not sculpture this time, a painting. Although not quite as young as Babel Peripherin, this artist was equally adored by critics and widely regarded as a genius. He went by a single and mysterious name, Sklint. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's such a stupid name. Sklint. S-K-L-E-N-T. My bad. My bad. I will not... I don't think I will laugh anymore when I read the name. I'll try. He went by a single and mysterious name. (laughs) Sklint. He went by... (laughs) Sklint. Oh my God. He went by a single and mysterious name. (laughs) Sklint. I can't. He went by a single and mysterious name. Sklint. And in the publicity photo of him that posed in the gallery, he looked dangerous. The masterpiece of Junior Purchase was a small, a 16-inch square canvas, but it cost $2,700. The entire picture, titled The Cancer Lurks Unseen, Version 1, was flat black, except for a small, gnarled mass, bile green and pus yellow, in the upper right quadrant. Worth every penny he felt so happy he was improving every day in every way life just got better but then something happened that was worse than the shooting it ruined his day his week the rest of his year after arranging to have the gallery deliver his acquisition junior stopped in a nearby diner for lunch the place specializes superb heartland food meatloaf fried chicken macaroni and cheese Sitting on a stool at the counter, he ordered a cheeseburger, coleslaw, french fries, and a cherry Coke. Another of junior self-improvement projects since moving to California was to become a knowledgeable gourmet, also a connoisseur of fine wine. San Francisco was the perfect university for this education because it offered innumerable world-class restaurants in every imaginable ethnic variety. Once in a while, however, he reverted to his roots, to the food that gave him comfort. Thus, the cheeseburger and its decadent accoutrements. He got everything he ordered, full value and more. He lifted off the top of the bun to squeeze mustard onto the burger. He discovered a shiny quarter pressed into the half-melted cheese. Spinning off the stool, the bun cap in one hand and the mustard dispenser clutch in the other, Junior surveyed the long, narrow diner looking for the maniac cop. The dead maniac cop. He half expected to see Thomas Vanadium, head crusted in blood, face bashed to a pulp, caked in quarry silt, and dripping water as though he had climbed out of the Studebaker coffin just minutes ago. Although only half the stools at the counter were occupied, and none of those were close to Junior, customers were seated in most of the booths. Some had their backs to him, and three were about Vanadium size. He hurried the length of the diner pushing past waitresses, checking out all three of the possibilities, but of course, none of them was a dead detective, or anyone else Junior had ever seen before. He was looking for... what? A ghost? But vengeful ghosts didn't sit down to a meatloaf lunch in the middle of a haunting. Junior didn't believe in ghosts anyway. He believed in flesh and bone, stone and mortar, money and power, himself and the future. This was not a ghost. This was not a walking dead man. This was something else. But until he knew what it was, who it was, the only person he could possibly look for was a vanadium. Each booth was at a large window, and each window provided a view of the street. Vanadium wasn't out there, watching from the sidewalk either. No glimpse of his pan-flat face shining in the December sun. With everyone in the diner, now a Jr., with every head turned towards him and every wary eye tracking him. He dropped the bun cap and the mustard dispenser on the floor. Barging through the swinging gate at the end of the lunch counter, he entered the narrow work area behind it. He shouldered past two counter waitresses, past a short order cook who was working eggs and burgers and bacon on the open griddle and grill. Whatever expression wrenched Junior's face, it must have been intimidating, for without protest, but with wall-eyed alarm, the employee squeezed aside to let him pass. Spinning off the stool, he had also spun out of control. Second by second, twin storms of anger and fear whirled stronger within him. He knew that he needed to get a grip on himself, but he could not keep his breathing slow and deep. Couldn't remember any of Zed's other foolproof methods of self-control. Couldn't recall a single, useful, meditative technique. When he passed by his own lunch plate on the counter and again saw the quarter gleaming in the cheese, he spat out a curse. And here, now, into the kitchen through a door with a porthole in the center. Into sizzling clatter, in the clouds of fried onion fumes and the mouth-watering aromas of chicken fat and shoestring potatoes turning golden and deep well of boiling cooking oil. Kitchen staff, all men. Some looked up in surprise. Others were oblivious of him. He stalked the cramped work aisles, eyes watering from the fragrant steam and the heat, seeking vanadium, an answer. Junior found no answers before the owner of the kitchen blocked him from proceeding out the kitchen into the storeroom and the service alley beyond. Simultaneously sweating and chilled, Junior cursed him, and the confrontation became ugly. The owner's attitude softened somewhat with Junior's reference to the quarter, and softened even further when together they returned to the counter to see the proof in the cheese. He went from righteous anger to object apology. Junior didn't want an apology. The offer of a free lunch or an entire week of lunches didn't charm a smile from him. He had no interest in taking home a free apple pie. He wanted an explanation, but no one could give him one that he needed because no one but himself knew the significance and symbolism of the quarter. Unfed and unenlightened, he left the diner. Walking away, he was aware of the many faces at the window, all as stupid as the faces of cud chewing cows. He had given them something to talk about when they returned from lunch to their shops and offices. He had reduced himself to an object of amusement for strangers, had briefly become one of the city's armies of eccentrics. His behavior appalled him. During the walk home, slow and deep, breathing slow and deep, moving not at a brisk clip, but strolling, trying to let the tension slide away, striving to focus on good things like his full exemption from military service and his purchase of the squint painting. San Francisco's pre-Christmas cheer had deserted it. The glow and glitter of the season had given way to a mood as dark and as ominous as a cancer lurks unseen, Volume 1. By the time he arrived at the apartment, Junior could think of no better action to take, so he phoned Simon Maguson, his attorney in at Spruce Hills. He used the kitchen phone at the corner secretary. The blood had been cleaned up long ago, of course, and the minor damage from the ricocheting bullet had been repaired. Strangely, as sometimes happened in this room, his missing toe itched. There was no point removing his shoe and sock to scratch the stump, because that would provide no relief. Curiously, the itch was in the phantom toe itself, where it could never be scratched. When the attorney finally came on the line, he sounded put upon, as though Junior were the equivalent of a troublesome toe that he would like to shoot off. The big-headed, bulging-eyed, slit-mouthed runt had collected $850,000 from Naomi's death, so the least he could do was provide a little information. He probably billed for the time anyway. Considering Junior's actions on his last night in Spruce Hills 11 months ago, he must be cautious now. Without incriminating himself, pretending ignorance, he hoped to learn if his carefully planned scenario regarding Victoria's death and Vanadium's sudden disappearance had convinced the authorities or whether something had gone wrong that might explain the quarter at the diner. Mr. Maggison, you once told me that if Detective Vanadium ever bothered me again, you'd have his choke chain and yanked. Well, I think you need to talk to someone about that. Maggison was startled. You don't mean he's contacted you. Well, someone's been harassing me. Vanadium? I suspect he's been. You've seen him? Magus impressed. No, but I... Spoken to him? No, no, but lately, you do know what happened up here regarding Vanadium. Huh? I guess not, Junior lied. When you called earlier in the year to ask for a referral to a private investigator down there, the woman had recently turned up dead, and Vanadium was gone. But no one put the two together at first. Woman? Woman? Or at least, if the police knew the truth at that time, they hadn't yet gone public with it. I had no reason to mention it to you back then. I didn't even know Vanadium was missing. What are you talking about? Evidence suggests Vanadium killed a woman here, a nurse at the hospital. Lover's quarrel, perhaps. He set her house on fire with her body in it to cover his tracks, but he must have realized they would still finger him, so he lit out. Lit out where? Nobody knows. Hasn't been a sighting, until you... No, I didn't see him, Junior reminded the attorney. I just assumed when this harassment started here. You should call San Francisco police. Have them put your place under surveillance and nail him if he turns up. Since the police believe that Junior accidentally shot himself while searching for a non-existent burglar, he was already in their books as an idiot. If he tried to explain how Vanadium had tormented him with the quarter and how a quarter turned up of all places in his cheeseburger? They'll figure him for a hopeless hysteric. Besides, he didn't want the police in San Francisco to know that he had been suspected, by at least one of their kind, of having killed his wife in Oregon. What if one of the locals was curious enough to request a copy of the case file on Naomi's death? And what if in that file, Vanadium had made reference to Junior waking from a nightmare, fearfully repeating Bartholomew? And what if then Junior eventually located the right Bartholomew and eliminated the little bastard? And then what if the local cop who read the case file connected one Bartholomew to the other and started asking questions? Admittedly, that was a stretch. Nevertheless, he hoped to fade from the SFPD's awareness as soon as possible and live henceforth beyond their ken. Do you want me to call and confirm how Vanadium was harassing you up here? Asked Maguson. Call who? The watch officer, San Francisco PD, to confirm your story. No, that's not necessary, Junior said, trying to sound casual. Considering what you told me, I'm sure whoever's bothering me here can't be Vanadium. I mean, him being on the run with plenty of his own troubles, the last thing he'd do is follow me here just to screw up my head a little. You never know what these obsessives, magazine cautioned. No, the more I think about it, the more it feels like this is just kids. Some kids goofing around, that's all. I guess vanadium got deeper under my skin than I realized, so when this came up, I couldn't think straight about it. Well, if you change your mind, just give me a call. Thank you, but I'm sure now it's just kids. You didn't seem too surprised, said Magasin. Huh? Surprised about what? About vanadium killing that nurse and Moosing. Everyone here was stunned. Frankly, I always thought he was mentally unbalanced. I told you as much, sitting there in your office. Indeed, you did, said Magison, and I dismissed him as a well-intentioned crusader, a holy fool. Looks like he had a better take on him than I did, Mr. Kane. The attorney's admission surprised Junior. This was probably as close as Magison would ever get to saying, maybe you didn't kill your wife after all, but he was by nature a nasty prick so even an implied apology was more than Junior had ever expected to receive. "'How's life in the Bay City?' the attorney asked. Junior didn't make the mistake of thinking that magazine's new conciliatory attitude meant they were friends, that confidences could be shared or truth exchanged. The money-grubbing Toad's only real friend would always be the one he saw in the mirror. If he discovered that Junior was having a great time post-Naomi— magazine would store the information until he found a way to use it to his advantage. Lonely, Junior said. I miss... so much. They say the first year is the hardest. Then you find it easier to go on. It's almost a year, but if anything, I feel worse, he lied. After he hung up, Junior stared at the telephone. Deeply uneasy. He hadn't learned much from the call, other than that they hadn't found vanadium in this Duda Baker at the bottom of Quarry Lake. Since discovering the quarter in his cheeseburger, Junior had been half convinced the maniac cop survived the bludgeoning. In spite of his grievous wounds, perhaps vanadium had swum up through a hundred feet of murky water, barely avoiding being drowned. After his conversation with Maguson, however, Junior realized this fear was irrational. If the detective had miraculously escaped the cold waters of the lake, he would have been in need of emergency medical treatment. He would have staggered or crawled to the county highway in search of help, unaware the junior or for Victoria's murder, too badly wounded to care about anything but getting medical attention. If vanadium was still missing, he was still dead in his eight-cylinder casket, which left the quarter in the cheeseburger. Someone had put it there. If not vanadium who 916-633-1537 wretched and ratchet at gmail.com ratchet book club on twitter ratchet book club on facebook leave a review on spotify takes like 13 seconds leave a review on pod chaser copy and paste that in the good pods copy and paste that into the apple podcast app you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast you can also donate to the show at buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the good pods app there's a tip jar Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'ma holler you later. Peace.